You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome into the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You're joined by thousands of photographers listening to the show who are on the same journey to master their photography. I'm Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode, and I am joined by a special guest co-host, Matt Bishop. Matt, you've been on the Latitude podcast with Brent Bergram, I think, but this is your first time here on Master Photography. So take a couple of minutes, give the listeners like the elevator pitch of who you are and what you do with photography. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's great to, great to be on with you, Jeff, and uh, great to have a chat with you. I'm very enthusiastic about it. Um, yeah. So my name's uh, Matt Bishop. Um, I've been uh, a landscape photographer now since about 2002. Um, I basically started out in the um, in the world of uh, film photography back in the day using a manual Pentax camera and shooting with the old Fuji Valve. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. That was a, right. a great film back in the day. And uh, yeah, I just I moved over to Europe. When I was about 22 years old, and just was amazed by the landscapes in uh, in Italy and the Dolomites, and I just yeah, I was just captured by it straight away. So I've been taking photos ever since. Probably I've taken it probably on more of a serious level into a bit of a leap into the digital world over the past four or five years, and um, yeah, just love it, mate. It's just a just a, it's a great hobby slash um, profession. So this is me, and um, yeah, I shoot with a Pentax uh, digital camera, and I'm quite um, renowned for being a, um, a landscape photographer in the Pentax community. And yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's about it, really. Perfect, perfect. I love it. And where did you go from? Where were you from before Italy? I'm from Australia, I as you can tell by be. my <laughs> by my rough accent. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I um, was from a little country town in in Australia, and I after I finished university, I moved over to London with my best friends, and uh, we all went out and bought digital or digital. We all bought went and bought film cameras together, and went out on excursions and started taking photos together, and. One thing after another, after working in London for a year, I fell in love with an Italian woman and ended up moving to Italy. So I've been sort of back and forth from Italy to Australia ever since. And now I'm, I'm in Italy and have been now for the last 10 years. And I have a family, two children. And uh, so I'm here. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I love it. That That is great. So do you speak Italian then? Yeah, I do speak Italian. Yeah, kind of, kind of had to. Yeah, <laughs> when you, when you, I, I work in the hospital setting, so my brain was forced to learn Italian very, very quickly. Ah, very good. Well, that's really cool then to be able to to be bilingual like that and and be there in in Italy, and uh, and so you do a lot of work in the Dolomites and Tuscan's countryside. Is that right? Look, not so much the Dolomites. I've been to a Dolomites a few times. It's still a good eight or nine hour drive to get to the good spots for it. Okay. From here, from I'm I'm based in Rome, so it's sort of central south. Italy's quite a small country, but it's a very long country. So, uh, I've been to the Dolomites a few times. The majority of the work I do in Italy is is out of Tuscany. I've taken a few workshops in Tuscany with uh with German photographers, and uh, it's it's only about a two hour. Um, two-hour trip in a car to get to the, the heart of Tuscany that everyone knows. So I spend quite a, f- quite a fair bit of time there. 
and and in um, in Patagonia and Argentina, I do workshops there too. So uh, that's that's my real passion is um, doing these workshops in Patagonia. Ah, I have a okay. very close friend over there who's got his own company, so we sort of collaborate together and and do those workshops there. So that's really good. Ah, very good, excellent. And it's good to know that you are a Pentax shooter because we have no representation of Pentax shooters on the show. So uh, w- whenever there's news about Pentax, maybe we'll have to hit you up and, and have you come on to talk about it. Oh, for sure. There's lots lots of exciting stuff going on with Pentax at the moment. Um, well, for the last four or five years, Pentax have been have been going really, really strong. Um, uh, I, I use their full-frame camera, which is the K1, um, which is an... I don't know if you know anything about it. It's a very, very powerful camera and, and not very well known right. amongst the photographic community. They have a very small niche in their um, in, in who uses Pentax. A lot of them are sort of old school photographers that have kept their old lenses and they and they stick with Pentax. So they've they've got their own um, their own community there. So it's on a small scale, but they're a um, they're a great camera and. Um, yeah, things are looking good for them at the moment. They bought out a whole series of new lenses and, you know, there's uh, new bodies coming out at the moment. Uh, so it's really good, especially when you see brands like Olympus just fall out like they have. It's quite uh, it's quite sad, isn't it, to see right. Olympus fall after, you know, 80 years, 90 years on the market. It's it's quite it's quite um it's quite sad, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like to for there to be as much competition among all, all these brands as we can get. That's nothing but good for all of us as photographers. So we need all of them to stick stick around and, and really create a, a competitive environment. So uh. yeah, look, I, I think the thing is with brands. It's um, I mean, when you look at Olympus, uh, 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 Olympus make a lot of their money from medical products. And and at the end of the day, they probably just weren't selling enough of their um, their digital cameras, so they just decide, look, enough is enough, and they've just moved on to the medical side of things. And you know, people are even talking about Nikon at the moment. That you know, there's all these rumours going around that Nikon could fail and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I don't know whether that's true, but brands like Pentax and uh, and Sony, they have other things rather than cameras. So they they do have a good financial backing behind them. So if they decide to stick with it, they can, you know. Right. Right. Mm. All right. Well, let's let's get on to our main topic for this for episode sure. then. Yeah, don't get me ranting. <laughs> <laughs> I I think we could talk about almost anything photography for a while, but let's focus in on uh, something that was kind of interesting that happened in our Facebook group, uh, which which Matt is a part of, and I didn't really know you were even in there. So um, thanks for for being a part of that group, Matt. And what happened was I I had an idea for an episode, and now it's probably going to turn out to be more than one episode. But I thought I'd really like to get uh, I, I'd like to see what everyone says was the worst advice that they were given. As they started getting into photography, we're, we're all given advice. Some of it is really good and really helpful. And it's good to ask other people, get, find mentors and and work through things and, and take in that advice. But sometimes that advice doesn't isn't good for us. Doesn't mean it's necessarily globally bad or universally bad advice, but maybe for us individually it is. And, and in some cases, maybe it is universally bad mm. advice too. Um, yeah. But w- what, so there were tons of it. We're not going to go over all of those here, but 
you chimed in with uh, with one of them that caught my attention too, and and said you'd really love to come on and talk about it. And so here we are. And that's uh, you, you made a comment about the use of ND graduated filters in digital photography. So give me some context then. What what do you mean by is that really bad advice using ND graduated filters with digital photography? Look, I don't want to get I don't want to get people angry out there because <laughs> I mean at the end of the day everyone's got their own needs and their own styles and and what they what they enjoy using in photography. I mean for me it was a personal preference. Um Look, when I started out photography, there wasn't the access to the information that we have today. You know, you didn't have social media. You didn't even have – well, I think YouTube just started out when I was actually taking photography, but, you know, no one used the photography. Um, So there wasn't that information out there. You just had those, you know, the photography magazine and a few things. And so you had to kind of make up your own mind about what you thought you needed and and took advice from from a few photographers and, and and back then in the first few years I was taking photos I was using um an ND soft grad filter and I was using it for literally everything and I didn't realize till later on that it, it can be quite a destructive um process in in taking an image um you know there it's it's a good filter to use if you I don't know if you have like a flat horizon and you uh-huh. can position the filter correctly and it it darkens up your sky to, to the right level. If you position it, you have to position it very, very correctly. But if you've got anything prominent foreground sticking out over that horizon, it will then darken that area too, which isn't what you want. Um, so that took me years to to understand that. And um, yeah, that's how the conversation started off on the uh, on the group, what we we're talking about. Was those initial years of, of of using that filter, which yeah, it took me took me many years to understand that that um it was a filter that needed to be used in the right occasion, let's say. And, and so the right occasion is one where you can have it kind of universally applied to a specific area and not have something that you don't want it applied to. For sure, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, maybe if you have like a, an ocean scene with no foreground, which would be pretty boring, <laughs> then, yeah, yeah. then, then okay, that, that could work. Or a sky, again, where there's nothing else kind of sticking up in the sky that you want to, to I feature. I mean, you can, you can have a foreground, but as long as it's not a prominent foreground, it's actually sticking out over the horizon. Right, right. Because then you're going to actually darken that area too. And that's something that you, you, you can't fix later on, you know. Right. Or you, you can in, in digital photography now. I'm talking about the film years. But in digital photography today, it's quite a destructive process that you really have to go and and, and manually fix um, in your digital workflow, which sometimes it can be a bit of a mess. Right. Okay. So l- talk about that then. What... What happens if you do use one of these filters? How do you try to address it in in post then? If if you've darkened down a piece of the scene and you like what's happened on most of it, but you do have a hill, a mountain, a tree, whatever, something that's prominent in the foreground that, that you don't want to be darkened. Yeah, you would have to make a um a selection of that area that, that you want to to bring the highlights back out again. And, and make it at the same um, tonal value of your foreground. So you'd actually have to make a very a very precise uh, selection of that area and, and bring that information back out again. But those, those precise 
selection sometimes don't work. You can try as hard as you can, but they, you know, they can be visibly uh, destructive. Right. Um, you know, there's many methods out there in in, in post production. Uh, Jeff, you use Photoshop, don't you, or do you use Lightroom? Uh, both, both. Yeah, I use both. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, in Lightroom, it it's literally impossible to get a very right. good selective area. You have to use um, some quite advanced tools in Photoshop to, to 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 bring those areas back, and you have to really know what you're doing. And and uh, let's face it, a lot of people out there don't know how to use Photoshop that well. Agreed. Yeah. Right. Okay. So and and it's it's far more challenging to bring something that's darker and make it look brighter than it is the reverse. As long as you didn't blow out the information, then going from lighter to darker is, is a much simpler thing to do. Is that right? If you're not burning your highlights, if you're burning your highlights, that, that is an issue. I mean, generally uh, as a general rule, when I, when I take my photos, I I mean, I do lots of blending and stuff, but as a general rule, if I'm going to take, you know, a one shot raw image of a landscape, I tend to always underexpose by a stop or two, just because I know the sensitive, the sensitivity of, of my, uh, my camera sensor will, um, will bring those, um, those shadows back out with uh with no noise um so it depends also on the type of camera the type of sensor you've got but as a general rule i tend to underexpose a little bit more than i should just because i'd prefer not to blow out my highlights in my sky yeah yeah that's that's definitely the worst thing you can do for the images blow out those highlights yeah then there's nothing that can be done no, uh, there's not. Okay, so so the, you you just think like ND graduated filters in the world of digital photography, there's just not a place for them. Oh, no, there is. Okay, but you have to, yeah, like I said, you have to find you have to find the right landscape to do it in. You know, like I said, you can't have those prominent areas of interest coming out over your horizon. If they're there, um, it can be destructive. Then again, I mean, this is this is my experience, and you know, some people might find that that, that that's not the case in their workflow. I, I've I've found that with with my work that I, I tend to prefer not to use them. I've got other methods of um of uh, of balancing out uh, a raw image using um using blending, or um yeah, basically using blending as as, as a far better um way of doing it. I think right. Yeah. Okay. And, and I agree. I, I think as we discuss on the on the podcast here, any any kind of opinion that we express, it's based on our experience, based on the experience I hear from a lot of listeners. If there's a, a photographer out there that that is finding success doing something that we're saying we don't think we should do, <laughs> then do it. That's great. Whatever it takes for you to get to your images that you like and that you're where you're accomplishing the result, you know, you're getting the result you want, then by all means, don't listen to anything we're saying. <laughs> if you if you're getting there, great. It's just that for people who aren't, we're offering some advice that might help them to uh, to maybe in- improve things and get to a place where where they want to be with their images. 
Of course, couldn't agree more with you. Yeah, they, they, these are, you know, based on our, our personal experiences. Right, right. And, you know, like I said, you know, ND grad filters, there is a place for them, but you just, you have to really, really understand how to use that filter correctly and when to use it. Sure. And if we're talking about, I mean, a huge portion of our listening audiences, are, they're people that are, are hobbyist photographers who love the, the art. They love doing the photography, but it's not the main thing they're doing. It's more of a hobby and they don't mm. have big budgets to spend on things. And so it's, it, I think it's pretty good advice. Like there's other things more important to spend your money on <laughs> probably than an ND grad filter, especially because the, the, it's, it's fairly easy to accomplish a similar kind of look in post uh, to be able to replicate what that kind of brings to, as long as you don't blow out those highlights, that's a really critical, critically important thing. There, you can't yeah. blow out the highlights. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is. So, what would be the alternative then, Matt? If if we are saying like, don't you don't need to spend the money on the filters to get it uh, on the camera in, in the first place? You can kind of do it in post. What what is that? What does that look like? Okay, if, so if we were going to talk, I do use filters. Don't get me wrong; I'm, I'm sure, quite, uh, sure. I'm quite passionate about filters, and I and I spend years using them, using many different brands, and collaborating with other brands, and um, so I do use them. Um, but when we're specifically talking about an ND soft grad here, um, generally the soft grads are three stop <clears throat> soft grads. That's the sort of the general filter that that, that the people use the you know the to go for soft grad nd um basically uh if i was going to approach a landscape where i wanted to darken the sky i simply just take two exposures and blend them together later on i mm -hmm. mean there's there's ways to do it in photoshop by taking a, a by taking your you know your selective tool in photoshop and you can quite easily um blend those two exposures in and get, uh, you know, better results. Right, right. That's a really good way to do it. And there's, it's not probably quite as good as going into Photoshop, but for listeners who maybe are just trying to figure out how to do some things in Lightroom, there's some decent kinds of filters that you can apply through the software in Lightroom to be able to kind of get a similar effect. And, and now that they've added luminosity masking or range masking uh, by luminance in Lightroom, that helps to define what areas are going to be affected by it. So that it's a, it's a really good thing to be able to try and get used to. You can get a, a much better result in Photoshop using luminosity masking and, and blending like, like we just talked yes. about. Yeah. yeah okay. Sure. All right. So let, let's, let's talk about then you said you love using filters and that it's not this that you're against all filters. It's just you, you think the ND grad is maybe a little less useful than some of the others. So what what are you looking for in filters? Tell me about the filters you use and why you use them. Okay. Well, um, I basically, my, I tend to use 85% of the time um, with the landscapes that I take, I, I, I tend to use... Um, a CPL pretty much yeah, 85% of the time. So a polarizing filter, um, you know, to cut the glare out, um, to cut reflections, unwanted reflections off water and to increase saturation and contrast optically, which is, which is a far better way of getting um, better results uh, with saturation and contrast rather than doing it in post-production. Okay, perfect. So a CPL is, is a really helpful thing. Um, is there a specific kind of CPL that you would steer people to? I would tend to... 
obviously people have budgets out there. Right, um, right. <laughs> there is there's so many filters on the on the market now. It's just incredible. Over the last three or four years, we've seen a huge boom in the amount of filters on the market. A lot of them come out of China. Um, a lot of them are basically getting their glass from the same factories and uh, and their resins from the same factories. But I think it's important that, that people have to understand before you put something on front of your lens, try and understand that you need to put something of high quality on the front of it. You know, we go out to spend a lot of money on a lens which has amazing optics and if you put another piece of glass in the front of that, you know, you want to make sure that that piece of glass is good quality because if it's not, you're going to get color casts. It's going to affect your sharpening. Um, you know, there's many reasons out there why why you should choose to go for a high quality a high quality uh, filter. So there's various categories out there. The main ones on the on at the moment on the market, without talking about brands, you know, you have your cheap resin filters which are resistant, but they don't have very pleasing results. Right. Um, as I said, this is all from my experience over, you know, 18 years of taking landscape photography. So, you know, don't, um, if, if there's anything I say wrong, <laughs> feel free to contact me and abuse me. <laughs> um, and then we move into glass filters. So at the moment, the major types of glass filters on the market, we have, uh, it's called B270 Scott. Which is a um, a German uh, fabricated glass, and there's a few different types. There's a tempered, non-tempered types of glasses, and basically that glass then gets taken off to to the company that will then make them into a uh, make them into a filter. So they will put your you know your, their various treatings and, and and coatings on them to 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 adhere them to to the results that we need. Um, and then there's a new one sort of been floating on the market recently, which is called score, um, Corning Gorilla uh, Grade 3 Glass, which apparently, I don't know too much about it. There's only probably two companies out there that are using this glass at the moment, but people are raving about it. It's apparently just ridiculously resistant and very, very neutral. Very cool. So the strength of it is kind of the biggest advantage about the Gorilla Glass. The strength. Yeah, look. Scott glass is is quite resistant. Um, there are some companies that use Scott glass that they don't treat it the same way that other companies do. Um, so it can be a very delicate glass. And th- there's some others out there that, that put very, very good coatings on them and, and you can literally drop them from two metres and nothing will happen to them. I mean, I've got filters that are... I use a 15 to 30 Pentax lens. I don't know if you know that's the same as the Tamron. It's got a big bulging lens and I have to put a 150 mil. Right. Um, square filter kit onto the front of it. It's huge. Um, so that, those pieces of glasses are quite big and you in and out of your camera bag all the time. Right. And I've dropped them and everything and they're fine. Haven't got a scratch on them, not a chip on them. Very, very good quality. Perfect. And I, I couldn't agree more that this is an area photographers really need to decide if they care, how much they care about their images. Because like you said, if you spend a lot of money on that lens and then you throw a $10 filter on front of it. You, you just made your lens into that $10 filter. Essentially it's, yeah. it's, it's no longer going to capture the image quality that it is capable of because you've ruined it by, by putting a really cheap filter on the front of it. That's going to affect image quality. 
That's and, right. And so you, it would be better off to not use it <laughs> if that's what you're going to stick in front of that, sure. that lens. Yeah, totally agree on that. Um, okay, so not that you know this is saying anything specific about it, but which brand of the filters do you currently prefer? Uh, at the moment, I'm using um, a filter kit. Of basically, to go back about uh, was it three or four years ago, I, I bought the the new 15 to 30 Pentax uh, lens, and to actually try and find uh, a kit for that lens was very, very difficult. Um, I think. When I started searching, there was only probably one company in the US that actually made them, which were called Wonderpanner, I believe. Very odd name, Wonderpanner. Okay. Um, and I ended up getting in contact with a, with a company that were just started importing into into Europe by the name of Case, with a K, and they made a, a very clean system using this Scott B two seventy glass with good treating, good coatings on it. And I've been using their their systems. Yeah, since and I'm yeah very very happy with the results, um, and and now there's probably about another six or seven companies out there that make that make similar systems. Excellent. Okay, now what about? I want to go back really quick to the CPL. Um, do you just kind of leave that on your camera lens then? The CPL? No, no, no. Because I mean, you you do have occasions where. Uh, if you've got a very, very soft light, I don't know if you're shooting um, in a forest or a woodland or however you want to call it, whatever country you come from, um, where it's very early in the morning, the sun hasn't come up yet, there's not any important light coming in, you might have fog, a very dampened condition, but you do have an atmosphere in that light. It's preferable not to use it in instances like that. Um, or if, uh, I don't know, I'm taking a photo... Uh, I'll take an example. Last year, my workshop in Patagonia, I was taking a um, an image uh, in front of a lake with uh, this um, this mountain range in the background, and it was early in the morning as this beautiful sunset coming up. And I threw my CPL lens, uh, CPL filter on, and I looked at the reflections. It was just so perfect. I just thought to myself, I don't want to ruin that. So I took my I took my CPL off, and um, and took that shot without. So. If you don't want to change reflections, you don't want to take maybe some people like the effect of, um, I don't know, wet rocks, you know, with the reflections of wet rocks on, on the seaside or whatever. If you do use a polarizer, it will, um, it will actually deepen the contrast of those reflections. And sometimes they're wanted reflections. So yeah, there's, there is, there is times where I don't use it. Okay. All right. Good. And, and technique wise, is there any specific technique? for using a CPL so that you get what you're looking for when you do want to cut the reflections. Definitely. Yeah, there is. Um, you should be taking, you should be using a, uh, for the best effect of a polarizer, you should be using it perpendicular to 90 degree angle, um, to basically, um, to get those, um, on unwanted reflections absorbed correctly through the polarizer itself. Um, and to do that, you, you know, you have to turn the filter itself to get the um, the correct amount of um, absorption that you need. Um, a technique that I that I tend to use um, with my camera is that I leave my highlights warning on my LCD display when I'm in live view. Okay, I've got like a highlights warning to tell me when I'm burning my pixels, and um, I polarize until my highlight warning is down to the most minimum amount possible. Then I know that my, I've 
polarize my reflections to you know to the highest degree possible right okay so you'll get an exposure set up where the the highlights in the scene are blinking showing telling you that there's highlight warning and potentially blown out and then you'll put the filter on and twist it until those warnings kind of reduce uh to the most you can yeah that's right yeah yeah Okay, good. Good good idea there. Any other so what other filters do you use besides the CPL? Anything else? I use ND filters on the odd occasion. Um I have in my bag a, a four stop ND and a ten stop. Ten stop was more like a toy when I got it. I generally don't tend to use it. The four stop I use quite on a frequent basis. If if I'm up in mountains, I mean <laughs> Look, normally, you know, with landscape photography, to get your desired light, you normally shoot, you know, sunrise, sunset, don't you? So normally right. at that stage of day, shooting at ISO 100, um, you know, your 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 um, your, F, your 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 shutter speed is quite low anyway to begin with. So you kind of don't tend to need to use an ND filter to re- to to reduce your stops to increase the exposure. Sorry. Um, but taking photos up in mountains when you've got lots of stormy weather and things, which is type of the photography that I really, really enjoy. Sometimes you're actually finding you're getting really good light at midday. Um, so I do use my ND filter to, to reduce the amount of light coming in to get a desired, um, shutter speed for maybe a waterfall or, or, um, a stream of water coming through my foreground or, or whatnot. Right. Okay. So yeah, having the ND filter in the bag too for something that's too bright, especially if you if if anyone listening is doing video, then that's a a very helpful filter. Often outdoors, it's it's often too bright, and we have to have specific shutter speeds for video. Anyway, the that okay that that's great. What should photographers? We talked about like don't go too cheap on these. What then should photographers look at? Because there's so many brands that are out there. There is. What what kinds of key phrases or key you know uh, attributes of these filters should photographers look for to make sure they're not getting one that's uh, that's too that that does isn't going to help with their image quality. They need to get a a brand of filter that that does use a, a good quality glass. So they need to get that Scott. Uh, B270 glass or B270 tempered glass, um, uh, or this uh, this this new glass that's out here at the moment. There's there's one brand that I know of at the moment that are just starting to come out now. They've just I believe they just launched on um, Kickstarter about three or four days ago with a new type of system by the name of H&Y. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're using this this new Gorilla glass that I was talking about, which is actually saying is even more superior than the B270. So you need to stick with a very high quality glass filter. Try not to go for resin, if possible. Like I said, having said that, this is this is pers- this is from my experience. Like <laughs> right. taking words out of anyone's mouth or um, or whatnot. Um, you need to stay with a high quality glass. So you know there is probably a good seven or eight brands out there that 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 do make good filters. Um, I, I tend to. With this glass, you do have to remember that it's extremely fragile glass. So it's important that that these um that this 
this type of glass is treated correctly too, that it's given the right coatings on it. So it is, it, it's less fragile. It doesn't scratch. Um, it doesn't smudge easily, easily too. Cause let's face it, a lot of the time, you know, when you're taking a photo in the front of a waterfall, you're getting that spray all over your filter all the time and you're constantly wiping it off. And sometimes you're wiping it off and it just smudges and you just have to move away and then come back again. And there's, there's some good brands out there. That are, that are smudge resistant too, which is which is excellent. Mm-hmm. Good. It, um, is there one in particular that does that you've experienced having a good job with smudge resistance? Well, yeah, my, the case is a very good system for that. Okay. Um, case. I, I, I would suggest if if um, you know budget isn't an issue to probably stick around. You know the brands like Case H and Y. Nizi are a good system to, I mean, everyone knows Nizi these days. They're everywhere around the world. Um, Nizi are a, a little bit on the delicate side, I've heard, um, but they're still an excellent quality um, piece of piece of glass. Um, Haida, too, which is um, a European brand, are very, very good. You've got Lucroit, which is Spanish, which is also very good. Um, Format High Tech. Um, Lee do make some elite fil- uh, filter systems, which are good. They they do have some resin t- um, systems too, but they do have the glass system as well too, which is good. So you you kind of have to look at those sort of main brands. There's also a brand in the US which does make good filters, what I've used in the past called Breakthrough Photography. I don't know if you've heard of those. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm a big fan of break <laughs> Breakthrough. Those are the filters that I have or breakthrough. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I used breakthrough um, up until probably about, yeah, about four years ago, but then I moved into, you know, this super wide angle photography and they didn't, right. they weren't making, they didn't have they weren't making a system for that. So I had to, I had to move on. Right. But yeah, they're a, they're a great filter. Yeah. They're very, very good. They've got good grip too on the outside. Very easy to put on, to screw on. Um, and now we've got this, these magnetic systems, which are amazing. Um so that, that that's the important thing too with the, with these with these filters too. You've got to make sure that they actually do have an easy to use filter holder um, because it's time consuming when you're out on field, isn't it? To put these filters on, they can they can be a bit a bit clumsy to you know to stick them on front of your lens and yeah. Um, that, there's now these systems out there where you can just put a filter ring. It's a magnetic filter ring which just screws basically onto the front of your onto the front of your lens and then you just have these magnetic filters that just boom, 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 stack straight on the top of them. They're fantastic. Right. Right. If the filters are tough to put on, then it, you're not going to use them. <laughs> if they're really hard, if it takes a long time to get it out of the bag and get it onto the lens, it uh, either the shot's going to be gone by the time you're ready or and you're just going to like give up. You're going to not use them. So the, the usability factor is is an element to it. And that's, unfortunately, that's kind of, you know, just your own experience. You have to get the filter and see how it does putting it on and off. So, mm-hmm. um, buying it from a place where you can return them. If, if, if you find that that filter is not working for you is a, is a really good idea. Yeah. Don't buy them off third party, um, you know, websites and stuff. If you're going to buy these filters, get them directly through the company. Um, make sure that before you buy these filters, that there is an ambassador, um, support system out there. Um, they're quite they're quite important these ambassador systems too because if you you need to ask questions if you do have a problem at least you've got a reference point. I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, now this might be an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. 
is there kind of a basic guidance you can give on like price where like anything below that certain price is probably not worth the money? Now it's not an unfair question because this glass is expensive stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And so if you're going to use an inferior product and charge less for it, um, you know, obviously it's clear on the market. I would, I would suggest for, for people who are starting out using filter systems to definitely, um, it's obviously based too on what filter, um, what, what lens you have. Um, right. The majority of the kit lens out that people are going to be starting out, for them a 100 millimeter square filter system is more than sufficient. Uh, and you're going to be spending, you know, anywhere between four and 700 US dollars to get a decent starter kit that has a polarizer, the holder, and at least a three, three stop ND and, and maybe another filter to play with, like a 10 stop or uh, an ND soft grad or an ND hard grad. Okay, good. All right. So somewhere in that range, you're, you're confident that they'll get pretty good quality lens, uh, filters and below that it's, it may be iffy. That's yeah. If if they, if I was seeing a filter system out there for two hundred and fifty dollars, I would I would think about it twice. Yeah, do your research for sure. Yeah, yep. Looking for that it's glass and not resin would be one of the key things. Um, okay, so and you recommended square. What about the circular that just screw onto the lens? Do you would you recommend avoiding those? Uh, no. Sorry, what was that? The 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 ones that screw on? Yeah, instead of the uh, square mount. Okay, your square mount, you it, it has its positives and negatives. If you're going to use an ND soft grad uh, or an ND hard grad, you do have to have a, a square filter system to permit you to slide the actual filter up and right. down to position it correctly. If you if you're using a, a circular um, filter, you can't do that. You can't position your center is your center, and that's right. it. So. Um, in my case, with my wide angle, um, I have a, a square CPL and a square ND purely because of the fact that my lens is so huge, it can't fit a circular polarizer onto it with the system I'm using. There are other systems out there that you can use a circular um, screw, not, not exactly screw on, but the actual form of it. The issue with with having square systems is that you have less protection because you don't actually have the the outside metal steel area of of the lens that protects the edges. It becomes mm-hmm. more of an exposed area, doesn't it? Right. Um, but the circular systems, these magnetic circular systems that are coming out now, if you're using um, a system where you don't have problems with vignetting, if you've got a I don't know between you know a sixty two and a, and a, and a an 86 millimeter thread on your lens with no vignetting, the the magnetic system is a great choice. Perfect. Okay, now my last question, and then we'll kind of get to the doodads and, and talk about the, the closing up the show here. Um, and maybe unfair again, <laughs> because it's kind of controversial. At least I, like I have unfair found. questions. Go for it. I like <laughs> a challenge. Yeah. Uh, I have gone on the record already as saying, I just don't think anyone needs a UV filter. Like, 
at all. It's just not, especially for the purposes of protecting your lens that I've heard so often. I've that, that would have been one of my answers to what's the worst advice you've ever been given. I was given that advice when I was first getting into photography, like so much so that it was like, as I was learning something, he said, if you don't have a UV filter to protect your lens yet, stop right now. And whatever I was reading or watching on YouTube or whatever it was and go buy a filter so you can put it on there to protect. It's really important. And man, do I disagree with that? (laughs) I don't think it's important at all that you do that these days and you can do more harm than good, either with a cheap UV filter causing image quality issues or it could get stuck on there if it's really cheap and and tough to get off. And it, it can really be a problem. So I, I really just, my recommendation, more of the advice that I give is I don't think there's even any need for a UV, but where do you stand on it? I agree with you hundred percent. Well, so definitely not- agree with you hundred percent. No, UV filters, uh, on, again, this is my personal experience are completely useless. Um, in the first few years I was taking landscape photography, I did have a UV filter on, on the front of my, on the front of my lens. And I didn't, I didn't have an idea that it was, there could be something destructive, um, you have to understand that anything that you put extra on front of your lens is going to affect, affect the lens optics. Right. So the less, the better. Right. In my opinion, um, if you want to protect your filter lens, you have a lens cap. <laughs> Leave your lens cap on. <laughs> or the hood. The hood helps too. Or hood. You know, if your lens is going to drop on the ground, a UV filter is not going to protect it. The lens is going to smash. Right. There's not much you can do about that. Right. Yep. So I agree with you 100 percent on that. All right. So maybe not so controversial then. <laughs> no, it's not so controversial. No, I think that the, the majority of photographers out there will will agree with us on that. Perfect. Okay. Anything else we should talk about with regard to filters before we close up the show here? Yeah. Just be careful how you use them. Like I said, um, if you're good at Photoshop and you know how to use masking, you know how to apply tonality masks. Um, Photoshop is an extremely powerful uh, application in workflow and a lot of things can be used with a similar or better result with with um, with post-production techniques. Having said that, a polarizer for me is a must. You cannot reproduce a polarizer in post-production right. it doesn't exist right. and even just as small things like you know saturation and contrast you're enhancing saturation and contrast optically that's far better than doing that in post-production you know that's where the real results are coming from so it's very very important to use a cpl and um yeah just be careful with everything else you use because a lot of it you can achieve with masking in in post-production these days. I agree. I agree. And I do love the polarizer to, to use it for landscape. I'm not, I don't do as much landscape as I really would like to. Um, I do way more portrait work, but, uh, you know, a mountain never paid me to take its picture, but, (laughs) but, but, um, I, I love the effect of what you can get, especially with water to get like a a result that the person with the smartphone standing next to you absolutely can't get (laughs) with, unless they also put some kind of, um, polarizer filter over their lens, but that's probably not going to happen. Um, they so exist. They exist now. They do. They do. <laughs> but most of them don't have that in their pocket when they're <laughs> no, they <laughs> with don't. their phone. No. Yep. 
All right, very good. I'm, I'm also going to mention that I do. We have another episode that we've gone through um, over on Photo Taco, the other podcast that I do. That's uh, Photography Lens Filters Explained is what it's called, and uh, and I'll I'll put a link in the show notes to it so that if if some of the things we've talked about on this episode you don't understand what that is or how it works, that's a really good uh, episode that you can go and check out to kind of get a starter on what all these filters are and, and how do you use them. So you can, I'll put the links in the show notes to that. Um, doodads of the week, Matt, I don't know if you have some kind of doodad that you would recommend, uh, but let me share mine first and then we'll see if you have one for us. And mine is going to be the EOS webcam utility beta. So this is software that Canon has released in, uh, back in, in May, I think, or maybe it was March, April, it was in April. They released in April and, and a, a utility to be able to turn your Canon camera. There's the DSLRs, a number of DSLRs are supported. Some of the mirrorless are supported and even some of the power shot line, the point and shoot models are supported to be able to do this. And it makes it so you can make those into a webcam and use it on conference calls. That's what it's designed for is using it like on Zoom, WebEx, uh, Skype, all of those kinds of things that a lot of us have been using now for a while so that you can actually make use of your like really expensive camera to get, get a little better picture uh, sent to those platforms. I do have a caveat though. There is a, a limitation that I have tested as thoroughly as I can and I'd love to have all of you listening help me test it further if you can. And that is that it, you can only get as far as I can tell, 576p 30 video out of it. So you can't get 720p, you can't get 1080p, you can only get 576p. And it doesn't seem to matter uh, USB 2.0, USB 3.0 on the camera. It doesn't matter if the camera could do 1080, 4K, you only get 576p 30 out of that. And um, I think I have a really good guess. I have an educated guess as to why that is. And I have a post over at phototacopodcast.com that talks about why I think that's going on and what I hope Canon might be able to do to change that in the future. So if you're interested in any of that information, go check it out over at phototacopodcast.com. All right, Matt, do you have some kind of a doodad, something photography related you can recommend to the, the listeners? Something photography related. Well, I'm not actually quite sure yet what doodad means, being an Aussie. <laughs> but anyway, um, I can tell you one thing that I'm really having fun with at the moment is the um, the DJI Osmo Action Cam. It's the coolest little system. Um, I've been using it for my YouTube channel lately, and it's a great fun little camera. I'm just have, actually having that much fun with it. It's got lots of really great features. If someone wants to play around with video and just have fun, it's it's uh, it's full of good stuff. It's got this vibration uh, reduction resistant technology in there. It's waterproof. Um, the sound quality is actually really really good. The the video quality is amazing, considering considering the size of it. That's my that's my little doodad at the moment. There you go. So yeah, you know the the doodad. Then that's exactly what it is. <laughs> it's just a little thing, whatever it is, something that yes. we like. Uh, very good. All right. I like that choice. That's that's great. Thank you so much for, for coming and taking your time out. I, over in Italy, you're eight hours ahead of where I am here in Utah. And so I appreciate you giving up some of your evening time with your family to, to join me. Um, what? Where can people find you, Matt? Um, I'm on, on Instagram like everyone is these days. You can find me on Instagram at Matt Bishop Photography with two Ts. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I'm pretty much everywhere on Facebook these days. 
and I also have my own YouTube channel, which is, is uh, I don't put that much of an effort into it as I should, but it is there under Matt Bishop Photography too, or on my website, www.mattbishop.com, mattbishopphotography.com, sorry. Oh, very good. All right, excellent. We'll have links to that in the show notes. I want to remind everyone, masterphotographypodcast.com is where you can go to get all of the show notes for all of the episodes. There's a menu option right at the very top if you're having a struggle figuring out where show notes are. That'll take you right to it. Our Facebook group, where I asked this question that led to this episode, uh, <laughs> is Master Photography Podcast. You just search for that in Facebook. You do have to ask to join. We want to keep the spammers and the bots out of the group. We only want listeners in there. So you have to name a host on the show. And so, and I, we're still seeing like tons of people asking to join the group, probably because it was recommended to them as they're browsing around on Facebook. And they're not listeners. They don't answer that question. So we don't let them in the group. We only want listeners there. So yeah, you can put Jeff or Matt will now work because he came on the show. And uh, and we'll let you right in to be able to do that and be able to participate in that group. You can tell us what other tips or what other uh, suggestions or advice people gave you that was not good advice for you. Uh, you can find that thread over in the Facebook group and add to it would be, would be fun. You can find me at jsharmanphotos.com or my other um, podcast is phototacopodcast.com. And then I have my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram handles over there too, the links over there. Thank you again, Matt. I'm so glad to have you on. And I'm, I'm gonna, when we have Pentax news to talk about, I'm going to hit you up again. Yeah, I'm the bloke to talk to with regard to Pentax. I'm the <laughs> the guy that knows all the gossip, and uh, luckily enough, I get to test out some of their prototype lenses when they come out too. So, I've always got some exciting news for anyone who's interested in in the Pentax brand. Thanks Very for having cool. me on, Jeff. It was great talking to you, mate. Yeah. Yep. So likewise. Uh, thanks everyone so much for listening. We really appreciate you all. We couldn't do this with show without you, and we'll see you all again in another seven days. <laughs> <laughs>